Welcome to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores the world of English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Each episode, we bring you voices from across the ELL community to discuss the issues that matter most. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations. I'm your normal host, Steve Sophronis. Today we have a little bit of a change in store. What are the implications of ESSA on ELL programs and instruction? What specifically are Title I and Title III administrators going to observe in the coming months? And how about principals and teachers? How is the K-12 world as we know it going to change in 2018-2019? We discuss these questions and more as Elevation President and Co-Founder Teddy Rice sits down with David Holbrook of Transact. We handed over the mic to Teddy, our in-house policy wonk, for this episode because he is well-versed in ESSA, which led to a rich conversation with David. Teddy, go ahead and take it away. Thanks, Steve. It's uh, it's nice to be in your seat for a change and uh, and to be the abnormal host for this week. Um, I'm really looking forward to the conversation with David. I got to know um, uh, Dr. Holbrook. A couple of years ago, uh, mostly through our mutual interests around ELLs and education policy and practice, he's often a speaker at um, large national events and has played a leadership role in a couple of important organizations, uh, including the National Council for Title III Administrators. Um, He's just got a great perspective uh, across up and down government, state, federal, local levels, and his current role at Transact gives him... um, a pretty in-the-moment perspective on how districts are interpreting some of the changes um, uh, that ESSA, uh, ESSA provides for. So I, I'm hopeful that uh, this will be a really outstanding opportunity for our community to hear more from a real uh, expert. He doesn't have all the answers. Uh, this is a very fluid and sort of uncertain time, but also a pretty interesting and exciting one. So I think um, hopefully this is the start of a conversation that uh, we'll have the opportunity to kind of uh, reconnect on uh, over the course of the next year. Also very happy to uh, announce and acknowledge that David, um, uh, while uh, of course uh, full-time with Transact, uh, has agreed and has become part of our uh, advisory board here at Elevation. He'll join some of our other um, really highly respected folks in the field to offer us advice and by extension, the wider community. So um, look forward to the conversation. Let's get started. Hello, David. Welcome to Highest Aspirations. Hi, Teddy. Thanks. It's great to be here. Uh, Thanks so much for your time. We're so grateful for uh, a little moment to get your expertise and thoughts on some of the exciting uh, developments going on right now in our field. I know quite a bit about you, but for the benefit of our audience, can you tell us a bit more about your background and and what brings you to this work? Sure. Uh, I started my career actually in linguistics. Uh, My background is in in linguistics. I obtained my PhD from the University of the West Indies in the Republic of Trinidad and Tobago and uh, did a lot of um, original research into languages, language boundaries, uh, with a particular focus on English Creoles. And the Creoles, the Creoles have some characteristics of language acquisition basically codified into them. And so when my I have four daughters and when they got older and it wasn't safe for us to live in some of the places uh, that we were ending up working 
we I left that job in uh, ended up in Fort Collins, Colorado, uh, teaching uh, English as a second language at Colorado State University in their um, what was then their intensive English program, and that was. Uh, Teaching English as an adjunct at a university is not uh, the greatest. I was working two other jobs just to make ends meet and uh, was looking for something else. And ended up at, um, at the State Department in Wyoming. So I worked for the Wyoming Department of Education for six years. I, I came in as their Title III director and I had the, the English learner background but not the, the legal background, but I had administrative experience at a, a multinational level in the previous organization I worked with and so they they really needed somebody who understood the L piece and the administration and the learning title three was an on-a-job experience uh, but I did well and eventually moved up to <clears throat> title one director there and then uh, I also eventually became the division director for the federal programs in Wyoming I was doing um, Indian education all the while I was their consultant for the Native American programs they had. They have a large reservation in the middle of the state. Yeah. So there's a varied background there. And in addition, during all that time, I also trained with the U.S. Department of Education um, and was a contractor to, to the U.S. Department of Education and helped them monitor Title III in five states. Uh, I've been involved with the National Council of State Title III directors for over nine years. Uh, two years as president, I was been an advisor and they just they made me their first honorary member and then just recently asked me to be their executive director. So I've been involved with Title III and Title III issues for a long time, but I've got that Title I side having been a Title I director and I understand a lot about federal programs in my, uh, because being that federal programs director and in my current position, I'm responsible for parent notifications for all of the ESSA titles. So that should give you a, a good idea of uh, some of my background there. No, that's really helpful. And you and I, of course, have had the benefit of knowing each other for some time. But um, I, I think there's very few people I know who would have more perspective and insight into this particular part of our world around federal programs and Title III management. So uh, really grateful for um, uh, you sharing some of it today. Um, maybe, you know, with, with, uh, with talking to David, I feel like it's, it's less about where to start and, when, and more like when to stop. There's a million things we could talk about. <laughs> Um, but just, I totally agree. <laughs> uh, but just to jump in, um, if you look at the new ESSA requirements for um, English learners, what are, do you think are the most important changes for districts and schools? <sighs> like you said, where to start? Uh, yeah, it's um, hard to it's hard it's hard to focus in on one or two things. But what, what would be the headlines? Probably the most significant um, is the move of accountability f for. Um, English learners progress towards English proficiency from Title III to Title I. Uh, that comes with some significant changes in how that, those accountability determinations are being made. Uh, there's no longer any accountability under Title III, it's all under Title I. And now instead of like under Title III, it was at the district level, but under Title I, it's at the school level. Under Title III, it was every grade was held accountable, but under the Title I accountability, only grades three through eight and once in high school. So that whole accountability shift <clears throat> is huge. There's no longer the, the AMAOs. Uh, and AMAO one and two related specifically to English proficiency. And AMAO three was for academics, which was also included in uh, Title I under NCLB. So that change is, is the biggie um, 
in ELP, English language proficiency standards were required under Title III as well as the assessment under NCLB, and that's no longer the case. Those are now required under Title I. That's a huge, huge piece because now you have, you know, Title I responsible for not only accountability, but for the standards and the assessments for English learners. So all of that has to be administered under Title I now. Uh, Title III has the federal supplement not supplant clause, which doesn't permit them to actually carry out activities that were, are required in another title under ESSA. Um, the, along with that move of accountability, there, were, there was the parent notice for um, students that are identified as English learners. That's now Title I only. Yeah. Uh, and if you look at the law under NCLB, there was a section in um, Title III that said, receipt of recommendations. And what it was doing, it was calling for regular meetings to get feedback from parents. That section has now been moved into Title I as well, but they changed the name of it to, to um, regular meetings rather than receipt of recommendations. And the U.S. Department of Education is putting a focus on ensuring that there's that parent and family engagement, that communication piece. So that's a big one as well. And there's a few others like the under NCLB, they talked about programs and other things needing to be based on scientific research or scientifically research-based. Right. Under ESSA, that language has changed. In Title I, it's now evidence-based, and in Title III, it's effective. And that effective piece requires some criteria to determine what's effective. So that's going to be a big piece of uh, that a lot of folks in school districts are going to be having to pay attention to is whether their programs are effective or not and what criteria they're using to determine that. And some of the states might be getting involved in helping determine what that criteria is. And then I mentioned parent and family engagement. It used to be parent involvement. <clears throat> and so the word family has been put in there. It's engagement under Title I. But um, in Title III, there's a, there were always two required activities. Well, now there's three. The two required before were, of course, uh, programs to help English learners attain English proficient, uh, achieve attain English proficiency and acquire content knowledge. And then there was professional development for teachers and staff. Well, the third one now is parent, family, and community engagement. Now, there are always a reference to community under Title III, but the, the addition to family in both Title I and Title III is significant there as well. So, lots going on, but focusing in on the, uh, on the Title I piece in particular, can just to start, can you, you've had the benefit of kind of being on the inside a little bit, or at least have some inside perspective on how things happen at, at the federal level um, and in DC. Do you have a sense for um, really why Congress thought it would be a good idea to make this change, to shift accountability from Title III to Title I? What was kind of the debate or how did, how did this kind of happen? I, I think when you look at that, it's based on two major factors. One, all the other accountability is in Title I for everything but English language proficiency. So consolidating accountability in one place makes sense. Yeah. And two, Title III had that AML3, <clears throat> which was the AYP for the L subgroup, which is a content measure. Right. And Title III is not focused on content. It's focused on English proficiency. 
um, you want students to be able to acquire content, but they need to be able to attain English proficiency to do that. Um, and so I think Congress wanted to try to consolidate everything in one place and, and move that accountability there because it was a duplicate for that AMA03. The second piece is AMA03 and AYP for the ELL subgroup was the only accountability measure where a school district could end up in improvement under two titles for the same, for failing one, one measure. And so you had some conflicting issues there <clears throat> with that. And in addition, there was no school improvement money under Title III. Right. So right. if you had improvement issues, you were basically left to address it on your own. It was an unfunded mandate to do all of those school improvement activities. So moving school improvement under Title I now opened up the potential for uh, using school improvement funding to address L issues, not just the content side, but the English proficiency side now as well. So um, that, that's a really, that's a good insider summation there. I think one of the things I, I see is missing in a lot of the reporting on ESSA and this particular um, piece of it is a, a little bit of the background for people to understand kind of why these pieces are moving around. So I think that's actually really helpful for a lot of people listening for today. Um, so what does this mean for the Title I coordinator? We'll talk about the Title III folks, uh, of course, as well. Um, but starting with the Title I coordinators, do they, is, is this a good thing? Um, and and how, are they, um, how are they accepting uh, this new set of requirements and, and new set of obligations? Well, I, from, from the title, <clears throat> excuse me, a Title I coordinator's perspective, uh, they're probably not thinking it's such a great thing um, because now they have more responsibility and they may not have the capacity. So a lot of Title I folks really don't understand and have never had to work with English learners. They've you know, counted on their L coordinators and Title III directors to handle those types of things, especially when it came to uh, English language proficiency. So uh, that's something that's going to be totally new to a lot of folks. You know, I'm not saying everyone. We have some folks in Title I who are sharp, who know and understand English learner issues, and, and that's good. But uh, I guess if you had a stereotype for Title I and related to English learners, it would be that they really don't understand it. There are, there are those out there who do. but um, So this is going to be a, a huge undertaking for them because they're going to have to shift their thinking in terms of how they work with their L coordinators and you know, how, how their staff need to be trained and, and what their staff need to understand. So it's, and whether it's a good thing or not, I think it's always a good thing for folks to uh, get a better understanding of English learners. They're uh, one of those subgroups that's constantly changing because once an English learner becomes proficient, they exit that L subgroup. And, but then more English learners are always coming in and uh, they tend to be the ones who are lower performing in academics initially because of their, because of the, the language gap there. And so, you know, working with that group and having an understanding of how to help those students become proficient and, and the types of services that you can provide that help them acquire that content knowledge is going to be really important and a good thing. And I, I view it as a good thing because it actually puts some responsibility in an area where there's money to address it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, that's to me, that's, that's a good thing. So, uh, looking down the hall to the Title III departments who historically do have this expertise and have had 
um, a lot of experience working with English learners. And of course, that, that, that's the, those are the folks that Elevation, um, uh, or some of the folks certainly that Elevation has served. Um, how are they responding? And what do you think, um, what do you think their relationship might look like with respect to their Title I counterparts going forward? Right. So right now, I think things are different than what they're going to be moving forward. And I, maybe we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but right now, from my perspective and my understanding of the, the way things are happening, there's a lot of Title III coordinators, Title III directors, L coordinators that are kind of feeling like, you know, a little bit left out because, mm -hmm. you know, and, and like I said, there are your shining examples out there of folks who are doing things and they're doing them well, but there's plenty of other examples uh, of situations where Title I is either saying, or denying that they now have this responsibility or they're um, trying to take care of it themselves and not include Title III when they don't have the expertise or capacity to, to do it appropriately. So there's some frustration there on the part of Title III coordinators um, in, in that area. It's like I said, it's not across the board, but uh, you know, I, I've seen situations where Title I and Title III are working together great. Um, and they're going to have to now because of uh, the changes that are going on. So um, one, one of the things that has been surprising to me, um, maybe not to you, but uh, is, is how little awareness I've observed, we've observed here at Elevation among kind of the wider education community around ESSA in general, and specifically uh, some of these changes around English learners, which, you know, superficially seem uh, not so huge, but, but in fact, really are pretty meaningful changes to the way people are going to conduct their work. Um, I, you know, I guess one, a question that uh, has, I think I know the answer to, but I'm curious what your observation is, is when will everyone take notice of a lot of these changes? When, I thought it would have been two years ago. Uh, then I thought it would have been when the state plans were accepted. Um, but it's still the case, I think, that um, professionals working with English learners either uh, whether that's in the Title III um, uh, office or Title I office, or for that matter, specialists and classroom teachers who are supporting English learners, there, there's not yet, I don't think, um, a wide understanding of the nuance behind a lot of this stuff. When, when do you expect that to change? Or first off, do you agree with that? And then when do you expect that to change? When is this going to become more real? Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. Um, I think one of the reasons for it is, you know, like you and I, when the law came out and when regulations come out, we like grab them and we're like studying. Yeah, we're like nerd, nerd out on the regs. We're, we're unusual. <laughs> <laughs> that, that you and I are actually like, okay, let's pour over this new regulations and see what they're saying and how does it affect what we're doing. And um, most educators don't have time yeah. or interest in, you know, reading a, a 400 page law or a 50 page regulation document or things like that. Um, they're, they're counting on people that are to tell them, you know, Hey, this is what's going on. And so I think that's part of the reason why there's a, a an unawareness of a lot of these things, because one, you know, I mean, I do presentations frequently on the differences between ESSA and NCLB. Uh, and, but, I, it's like I'm I'm only reaching a small audience, so those those folks know and understand because they've heard it from me, and I'm sure folks have heard it from you as well. But for those who aren't hearing us, then this is something that's 
new and they don't understand it. You know, they may not have fully understood what they were required to do under NCLB. And now that it's changed, they're not sure where things are. Looking forward, when do I think this is going to change? This year. Uh, mainly because this is the first year we're seeing accountability determinations. So you're going to have schools identified for both comprehensive and targeted support and improvement, which means um, they're, they're going to be schools that targeted support and improvement is for subgroup improvement. Um, so consistently, you know, low performing subgroups are going to be, are going to identify a school for improvement. It's the first time we're going to see schools identified for improvement based on English language proficiency has never happened before. Yeah, that's going to be a big change. I think change. When, when, when there are schools identified in that way, for those schools, it's going to be a huge wake-up call. And for state departments that suddenly, in Title I, state departments that have to provide technical assistance to those schools, and those Title I ha folks have always said that accountability is under Title III, there's going to be a need to loop Title III in because they're the ones who have the expertise and, more importantly, the experience in working with schools and school districts in improvement areas. They know the interventions. They know, you know, the things that are, you know, going to be the pitfalls and the different areas that are going to help uh, with improvement, those types of things. So it's going to be important for, for that. So if, if – if that starts to happen for real this year, and, th and that's, by the way, our assessment as well, um, it's probably too early to ask, you know, have you seen any best practices yet? But um, what, what do you think, if you could paint the picture of what, um, you know, what a new kind of structure might look like or some, some ideal world scenario, um, or maybe not ideal, but like a real world scenario, what, what do you anticipate? What, what, what kind of vision should we have in mind for, um, uh, how Title III and Title I should be working together in a school district? Yeah, you know, under NCLB and under ESSA, there are collaboration requirements specifically for Title I. And in those collaboration requirements, they specifically call out that Title I needs to work with programs that serve English learners, other programs. I mean, it's very specific. But when you look at the ideal way things should happen, let me do a brief kind of like discussion of what's going on with the law and how it's organized. Yeah, please. You have Title I that has these responsibilities, but then you have Title III that is now specific to programs for English learners and professional development. Um, when it comes to the programs for English learners, the assurances and the other information in Title III specifically say that the programs are to address the long-term goals and interim measures that are set under Title I. So the coordination that needs to happen there so that Title I and Title III are talking to each other so that Title I says, these are the goals we're trying to reach. And Title III says, okay, we need to design programs to meet those goals. Um, that, that whole piece of the coordination pie has got to happen if things are really going to work together. And, and, the, and it's required under the law, but it's just not something that's given a high priority or high focus. Yeah. So those are some things that I, that's, that's one of the big pieces, pieces that I think we're going to need to, to put into place in an ideal world so that you have that coordination. The other piece is Title I is responsible for this now, and they need to take that responsibility seriously and either hire staff that have an understanding of English learner issues 
or they need to provide some training to their staff so that they can work with them. Working with Title III is great, but Title III is limited because of that federal supplement, not supplant clause, on what they can actually do. So having the Title I staff be able to actually do some of the things that Title III can't is going to be important. Another way that this could work out is split funding your Title III directors partially with Title I. Yeah, yeah. Which would give them the capacity to be able to call on those Title III directors because they're also working under Title I because they're being paid from both funding sources. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you do that, then you have the capacity to, to, for even a higher level of coordination because Title III will still have the opportunity to work on their Title III things. But then when it comes to the Title I stuff for English learners, those with the expertise, especially if the Title I um, staff in, in a district don't have the capacity, the, the, the people with the expertise will be there to be able to do that. So it's almost, yeah, we talk a lot about bilingualism and multilingualism here, obviously at Elevation. It's almost like we need bilingual administrators who can kind of walk. Bicultural. Yeah. Bicultural, <laughs> who can sort of have one foot in, in the Title III world and one foot in the uh, Title I world in order to understand each other better. Yeah, that's, that's been one of the things that's been very helpful to me is having been a Title I director and a Title III director. Right, um, right. Having an understanding of both worlds and then looking at, understanding NCLB and where how it was coming from and then looking at what they're doing now under ESSA and the changes in, in the the ideal world that you don't get unless you look at the whole law. Yeah. It's sort of like you have Title I that's focused on Title I and Title III that's focused on Title III. And if, if they're not looking at each other's requirements, then they don't really understand how they're supposed to work together. Hmm. Is there... Uh... And again, you might not have any, so it's okay to say, I don't know. Um, but is there a state or two that, or maybe a, 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 a sort of, you know, a lighthouse district or two that you'd say, boy, you know, they're, they're really thinking forward about this, or is mostly everyone kind of in responsive wait and see mode and try to figure this out? There's, I think it's a kind of a responsive wait and see. I see some very promising things. I see some things that are very concerning. One of the things that concerns me for accountability is a state's choice of end size and how they make accountability determinations. For those who aren't familiar with end size, it's the number of students that are needed in order to make an accountability determination. I, I was presenting at a conference in a, a state level conference. I'm not gonna name the state. Uh, and their end size was 20. But now that determinations are at the school level, you have to have 20 English learners in a school to make a, a determination. And if you don't, then that, that school would get a buy for English learners. They would you know, not be held accountable in a sense if they don't have that requisite number. Now, some states are handling this by doing a multi-year average. So let's say you have seven students. So they go, okay, last year, how many did you have? Well, we had seven last year as well. Okay, well, that's only 14. We're still not up to that 20. So go one more year. We had seven students. That gets us up to 21. So we look at the scores over three years and do a determination based on three years of data rather than one. So that's kind of a multi-year average. Some states are doing that type of thing. The state that I was in isn't doing that. But what they are doing is they're maintaining a district-level accountability determination for Title III. So rather than doing a multi-year average, they're going, okay, if you if you only if you if we can't hold the schools accountable, then let's roll it up to the district level. And if the district has at least twenty English learners, then then we can hold them accountable for English learners. But at the district level, 
So it's, it's a different approach to, to that. So to me, it's not as ideal as, you know, but it's, it's a, it's a good approach. And, and to clarify for, for folks listening, um, I think I know the answer to this, but I, I want to confirm it. I presume that most of those decisions are entirely at the discretion of the states. Is it, or is, or is there federal guidance, which is coming from DC, which establishes any kind of norms around that? Or is it pretty, is there a lot of latitude? The, the pendulum in terms of who, who determines what has swung significantly from the federal side to the state side. Yeah. The feds are saying, you still have to do these things but we're not going to tell you how to do them. You determine that yourself. So that's the big thing about ESSA state plans is that there was a lot of information that states needed to put into there because the feds weren't telling them what to do anymore. They needed to tell the feds, this is what we're going to do. And then the, then the U S department of, I call them the feds, the U S department of education needed to um, make the determination whether that really met the intents and purposes of the law, that type of thing. So, that's, that's a, all of those things are a state level decision. So when I go into a state and I make it a, a, a presentation on, you know, the differences between NCLB and SF for L's, uh, I talk about state plans and I try to make sure I've got a state director in the room who knows what their state has determined in a number of different areas. And I find that it, that's not always the case. They don't always know, even state directors. So, yeah, so I mean, moving on to that for for uh, the next question I had was really around the state folks. So you you've had the benefit of actually being one of the SEA level state education agency level uh, uh, administrators, and you have uh, played a leadership role in different capacities now as executive director with the National Council for State Title Three Directors. So you you know all these folks. Um, how are um, how are the ch- these changes affecting their work in per- in relation to both? Um, the Title I counterparts that they also have, you know, in their state capitals, um, as well as with the um, the LEAs that they serve. Yeah, and, and it's like I said, with the Title I folks, there are some shining examples out there of folks who are, you know, trying to make things happen in a way that's actually addressing the, the needs of English learners, those types of things. But there are the, the overall general impression I'm getting from a lot of state Title III directors especially is that they're being left out of a number of things. Uh, with the standards and assessments for English language proficiency having moved to Title I, uh, that was always a Title III thing and Title III was often doing a lot of stuff working with assessment and things like that. Well now it's a Title I responsibility and they're finding that Title III folks are kind of being left out. We've never, there's always been peer review of the content assessments, but there, but up until now, there was not peer review of the English language proficiency assessments. Now that's going to happen. And, you know, this, the peer review process is starting. And a lot of Title III directors who were the ones who, you know, are the most familiar with those ELP assessments, they're not being brought into the loop because assessment is now having to talk to Title I and they're not really including them. Although they're asking Title III all the questions that they don't understand, they're not really including them on how all of that works out. So there's, there's sort of a, a, a lot of feeling of, you know, I have all this expertise, I know this, but they're not asking me to help them. And it's a bit of a frustration on the part of a lot of Title III directors at the state level. Um, Title I folks, I don't know if they've totally come to grips with the fact that they now have to handle all of this 
English, all of these English learner requirements, especially the standards assessments and accountability. Those three in particular uh, are, 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 they're like, you know, boom, that's a huge piece. Uh, Title III used to monitor the implementation of uh, English language proficiency standards in the classroom. Well, that's now a Title I responsibility. So when you're, when you're looking at, you know, states monitoring school districts, that's going to be an impact. And how well states monitor that or if they even think that's something they need to be looking at. Uh, so that's some of the issues that you might be seeing at the district level is you're going to be talking to different people at the state potentially around some things related to English learners. Uh, you might be talking to Title I. With other things related to English learners, you might be talking to Title III. And if the, if the state isn't on the same page, then they may be getting conflicting guidance or information. It's, it, it's without that coordination that I talked about, it sets things up for problems. For confusion. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Well, that will be something to monitor. That's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's, a, and I guess I, I, I was curious to get the perspective of what this is going to look like at the school. So we have, uh, you know, we have folks serving English language learners from the state down all the way into the classrooms. What does this look like for, you know, your, your fifth grade homework teacher or, 10th grade chemistry teacher. Yeah, they may not see as much of a change because it's the administrators who are going to be, um, you know, they may be having their Title I director come in and talk to them about English learners uh, rather than their Title III director, you know. So there'll be some changes along those types of lines, but they're not going to see a huge difference. They're not, they're not, the folks who are out there teaching aren't as much impacted by the, um, the law in that sense so it's it's one of those things and uh you know the other thing that i wanted to mention about this whole issue with the states is the u.s department of education and how it affects the states as well because the u.s department of education reorganized a while back into the office of state support and they're trying to bring all these titles together in collaboration and so you, you've seen some reorganization at state departments uh, even national organizations like the National Title I Association is now reorganized to the National Association of ESEA State Program Administer Administrators, and they're covering all title programs now instead of just Title I. Um, title III, the National Council of State Title III Directors is going, okay, we need to reconsider what we're doing because we, we do more than just, you know, Title III. We're looking at a lot of English learner issues. So they're talking about reorganizing. They're even uh, meeting jointly with La Cosecha on November 14th in Santa Fe. So if anybody's interested, go to the uh, Title III's council's website, uh, ncstiid.org is the, uh, is, the, is the address if you're interested in more information about that meeting. Um, very, yeah, very helpful. So I mean, to, I wouldn't say to some because it doesn't feel like anything is summed. Um, but but it does seem um, what we're describing is you know a promising set of changes grounded in some real thought around the right alignment of accountability, funding, um, and I, I would go further and say sort of. Um, also, also uh, attempting to mitigate or address some of the weaknesses of the prior NCLB law with some new um, focus areas. Um, but we also have the potential for fair amount of confusion, at least in this first year, as things, as things settle. 
I think one of the, one of the things that would be interesting and maybe an area for you know a next podcast would be kind of reflections on successes and 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 failure and try to share some learnings for districts and states who are you know trying to figure out and sort this out for themselves. Um, t t tell me, uh, give us just a quick sense in your current work with Transact. So you're the executive director of federal programs for Transact. Um, that, that's that's the title, right? Well, it's changed. It's oh. federal compliance and state relationships. Federal compliance and state relationships. So what, what are the most important things on your mind uh, in that role? And is that, and, and is what we've been talking about here, you know, consistent with a lot of your focus? I know you've got an, an outstanding ebook out and a lot of blog posts. Everyone should, by the way, take a look at David's um, uh, blogs on the Transact website. Um, but what, um, what, what's, what's chiefly on your mind around ESSA and a lot of these issues? Is it, is it English learners at the center? Is it more broad to conclude kind of a lot of this stuff? You know, it's, it's, a lot of it is the shift of responsibilities in, in English learners, those requirements that were shifted, especially from Title III to Title I. Because, you know, as with you, you're, you've been serving Title III because that's where, you know, the focus for accountability has been under, you know, for English learners. And we've been working on trying to make sure that, you know, we're providing what Title III directors need to, to help them as well as, you know, the other program directors as well. But now with the shift from Title I, uh, Title III to Title I, there, there is a lot that has to happen in terms of educating Title I directors on, on these changes and now who's responsible for what and how that's going to actually play out. Uh, when they go to administering the programs. And so those shifts and, and that type of thing. And, you know, the ebook you mentioned is, is focused on, you know, how should Title I and Title III be collaborating together? Because that collaboration piece, like I mentioned, is huge. And so I actually wrote an ebook, provided information about, you know, the, the justification or the documentation citations of, you know, those collaboration requirements and then some, uh, suggested things that could could be done in order to uh, actually implement that type of collaboration. So that's that's what that was about. So th those types of things are like really important right now. Uh, that whole trying to make sure everybody understands what they're supposed to be doing, but they're also working together to make sure that it gets done. Because the expertise to do things now is not always in the place where it's required. Uh, really helpful. Um, David, last question. Is there a, for, we like to finish these podcasts with um, advice or references to other things that uh, our listeners might uh, might pick up to learn more about the topic. Is there a book or a resource that you would recommend for listeners that want to dig in more on this? I don't know of a book off the top of my head. Uh, you you I, haven't written it yet. That's why. I, no, no. I, <laughs> and I don't know if I'm going to. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think, you know, I don't know what... Brucina Manasovit has done. They they often will put out a book on different topics. I know they've done some things on school improvement under ESSA. Mm -hmm. um, I I get a lot of information from them. I get a lot of information from Ed Week. Yeah, always following you know what's going on because they're pretty current. And uh, you know Politico as well often has some current information. They're they're more political, uh, but they they still are often you know kind of like the first to report out on things. Um, so I, I follow them just to try to be current. Uh, so those are some things that, that I do, but I would in particular be watching what happens this year. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is going to be the first year, like I mentioned that, you know, schools are going to be identified 
because of English language proficiency under Title I. And it's the very first time that there's school improvement money available to address that. And so this is, this is a really important year on what happens there. And so, you know, be watching what people are saying and how people are doing things. And, uh, you know, I don't know of a good source where somebody's reporting all of this, but I kind of look at a hodgepodge of areas to try to keep up with what's going on. And when you write that book, Teddy, we're good. Yeah, we're good. We're good. <laughs> um, well, Dr. David Holbrook, thank you so much for your time. Uh, from one ed policy nerd to another, uh, really good to uh, reflect on some of these changes. And my hope is in a year or maybe in six months, we actually can get together again and reflect back on that year with some more, yeah, some real tangible examples of how people are responding to these laws. I think they're, I think it's very important for um, ELs and very important for the uh, educators and administrators serving them, um, but obviously still very much an unwritten book. It would be really interesting if we see any kind of uh, monitoring either by from the U.S. Department of Education or states of school districts, uh, their implementation of asset during this past year, because this is also going to be the first time you're going to see any monitoring. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, we've had one year of implementation now, so how are folks doing? So that'll be an interesting thing to watch as well. Great. Well, I wish you the best in the uh, remaining bit of the summer here and uh, until the next time. All right. Thanks. Best to you too. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.